podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. All right, we are, we are studying through the book of Luke, and uh, uh, prior to and then just coming out of, of uh, Christmas, um, talking about the arrival of King Jesus, and, uh, and so we are continuing on, be going through the book of Luke uh, th- up until Easter, am I, am I right? Yes, and then Easter, break into the book of Acts, and so uh, following through the scriptures, which of course following the church calendar, which is a wonderful thing, and so... I'm going to start here. We're in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And, uh, and so it begins, it says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, Tiberius Caesar was the Caesar to follow Caesar Augustus. Uh, Tiberius Caesar was uh, even more ruthless than Caesar Augustus. And so uh, what we're dealing with for uh, the Jewish people was uh, had gone from bad to worse. All right? So um, things are not looking good for them. Um, they are, and, and I think there's something else to kind of keep in mind here. And, and, and we read the scriptures, and, and of course we can read from chapter to chapter to chapter, and Jesus is born in, in the first couple chapters, and then we're on to three, and, and John the Baptist is announcing the, the coming of the kingdom, and Jesus is coming, and next thing we know that Jesus is baptized, and he begins his ministry. Thirty years happened between those couple of chapters. So Imagine now that you're, uh, you're, you're a Jew, you've heard, really, there's these two breaks you hear in the Old Testament, and they've had 400 years of silence. All of a sudden, now angels are coming in, there's this breaking in, the Messiah is coming, and then all of a sudden, silence for maybe another 30. So, so there's kind of this anticipation going on, this, well, we've heard something, maybe we hear some rumblings about Jesus, we heard about this, this 12-year-old kid in the temple, we don't know necessarily how much that might have spread around, but, but, but. The, the, the circumstances, the place in which they're living, the, the cultural context, the governmental influences have become more difficult. And so, so and it says then, and it's kind of talking about the cultural setting uh, through which uh, John the Baptist is going to come and the, and the, and the um, environment in which these people are living. And it says, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Ituria, and I think that's like southwest of Pueblo. So just in case you're wondering, and Traconitus, and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So this is John the Baptist. This is, of course, when we look at uh, what, what's going on here, is this is John the Baptist, the one that leapt in, this, in the womb of his mother Elizabeth. And we know here in verse 3, three it says, He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, for John to be communicating the baptism of repentance, and he's talking to the Jewish people, which is pretty amazing because, because the Jewish people didn't need to be baptized. If anything, if to look into Old Testament law, they needed some sort of cleansing if they had sinned. But he was calling for baptism. And yet, at the same time, there was people that were flocking to him and flocking to be baptized. And we get a little bit of a hint of some sort of urgency for them 
in this next verse, as it says, As it is written in the, in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, A valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. We're going to come back to that verse. He's quoting from Isaiah. We're going to talk about that here in just a second. But in verse 7, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? There's this urgency somehow in these crowds that are coming out feeling like, if I don't get baptized, I'm going to experience wrath and judgment. And so, so maybe this had to do with the, the overall persecution that they were experiencing by Tiberius. Uh, and by the, the Roman government, the ways in which they were pressing in on them. Um, and so, but we don't know exactly, but they were sensing some sort of judgment wrath, and what they wanted to do was to evade it. They wanted to make sure, I want to make sure that when that comes, I get passed over. And, and, and they, of course, would have known about the wrath coming, the exodus. If we go back to, uh, to Exodus, and we see that the Passover, Mark on the, on the, on the uh, door frames that they were, the wrath came, but it passed over them. And they're thinking, well, baptism, I'll get baptized if that's what's going to make the wrath pass over me. And so he says that uh, John the Baptist is preaching in the countryside. And, it, and of course, this in verse 4, when it says, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling into the wilderness, this is John the Baptist. So he is a fulfillment of prophecy. And the prophecy uh, is coming from Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. And it says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. In Luke chapter 1, verse 17, that same uh, section in Malachi is quoted, and it says, And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And he's talking about John the Baptist in the womb of, of his mother Elizabeth, to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so, so John is coming. He's fulfilling this prophecy now, Luke, the writer here, describing what's happening with John the Baptist, is different than the... the he, he describes a little bit more, and he uses more of this passage out of Isaiah than Matthew does. Matthew only uses, actually, the first verse. This is Isaiah ch- chapter 40, verses 3 through 8. And, and Matthew only uses verse 3. The reason I believe, and, and I know that Glenn has talked about this, that, that Luke includes... 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, is because in verse 8 it says, it says, and all this is verse 6 in chapter 3, and all people will see God's salvation. Luke is talking about all people. He is wanting to make sure that he is, con- that he is uh, communicating to the people, all people, outsiders, not just Jews, but Gentiles will be included in this message, having part of what Jesus is coming to do. And so he includes this whole passage of Isaiah to communicate, and he continues to communicate throughout the book, that outsiders will become insiders in the kingdom of heaven. And so he goes on here and starts to say in verse 7, it says, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Now, if, we, if you've read the Gospels or if you've read portions of the Gospels, you recognize that phrase, brood of vipers. Brood of vipers is usually reserved for the Pharisees. 
In the book of Matthew, it actually says, when he's describing this, this scene with John the Baptist, that it says, and the crowds are coming out, and then when John the Baptist saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming out to be baptized and to see what was going on, he actually addresses them. So when we, even in this particular uh, passage, even when he says, brood of vipers, we can, we can guess or we can see that he's either talking specifically to Pharisees or people that were extremely religious, that they were kind of the letter of the law. Yeah, we're going to do what we have to do. We're, gonna, we're, kind of, we're self-righteous. And so he is addressing them, and he calls them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Now, before we go on to talk about this, I want to talk about repentance for just a minute. This idea of repentance... For them, was just somehow this baptism. We want to get baptized. But he's talking about, first of all, you, I'm calling you to repentance. And I'm calling you to realize that you are going the wrong way. N.T. Wright, as to his description or his definition of repentance, is to turn your, return to God with heart and soul. See, I think it's one thing to turn away from something. And oftentimes we are encouraged, turn away from this, turn away from alcohol, turn away from pornography, turn away from your prideful ways, turn away from greed, turn away from these things. But if we're, not, if we're turning away from greed and we turn over to gluttony, I'm not sure that that's going to do us all that much good. If we turn away from wrath and, and uh, j- just jump right over into envy, I'm not sure that that's, I actually know that's not what God has in mind. God has in mind for us to turn from greed, to turn from wrath, to turn from the kingdom of self and to point ourselves towards the kingdom of God, which would mean turning heart and soul, saying, I'm going the wrong direction, and I want to point myself in the direction of God. And so that's what John is calling to these people. He's saying repentance. Now we've got to remember, John is the one that is preparing the way for Jesus. So John saying repent, he, what he's saying is repentance prepares the way for Jesus. Repentance in our own lives prepares the way for Jesus. I was reminded as I was studying for this of the, of the scripture that says that God gives grace to the humble. If you think about repentance, repentance is a very humbling action. It's a very, it's a very humbling experience. We recognize, oh, I, I blew it. I, 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 I've been prideful. I've been judgmental. I love how in this service on a weekly basis there's a time for reflection and and confession, not only individually but then corporately. Because what it does is it causes us to look inside and it causes us to look at our lives. It causes us to look at the last week or the last days and and to say, which way, in which ways am I not heart and soul pointed towards God? And so then in or then what we're supposed to do, it's not like, well, I guess that's that's nice. Yeah, I guess I did this. What we're doing then is we're humbling ourselves, pointing ourselves heart and soul towards God and saying, God, I repent for this and I turn towards you. So I turn away and I don't just turn away to whatever else I want. I turn towards you. Turning from that which has no life to life himself. And we're saying my way is not the right way, but God's way is the way. And this repentance is a beautiful thing, not a shame-filled thing. It's a beautiful thing, this 
this idea of turning our hearts towards God. I believe that we should be quick to repent. I do a lot of marriage counseling, premarital counseling for couples, do a lot of weddings, and, and one of the things that I think is really valuable is to encourage young couples to tell and, and say, be quick to repent to one another. Be quick to say, you know what, I, I blew it here. We so quickly and so often want to and are looking to really have the other person repent. We're asking them to say sorry for what they're sorry for. That's oftentimes what we spend so much of our energy doing in our, in our marital conflicts. And sometimes if we can just step back and say, okay, maybe she is wrong. Probably not, but she might be. Most likely, I'm ca- the cause. And, and it's not that we then say, oh, I'm responsible for every bit of this. But what if we were to step back? Husbands lead the way. What if we were to step back and say, you know what, I repent. I repent for the way that I just spoke to you. I repent for the ways in which I didn't love you well. I'm, I repent, and we are quick to repent. It's a very humbling process. It's a very humbling uh, action. But in that humbling comes grace. Repentance prepares the way for Jesus. Repentance opens the door for grace to enter into our lives. But John goes on here, excuse me, Luke, talking about John, goes on here to basically say, okay, that's, that's good, and repentance is good, but repentance, baptism, that in and of itself, without some action, and he's going to talk about that, is not the, it's not the end goal, it's not the picture. And so he says here, produce fruit, verse 8, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have, Ab- we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, these two references, just in case you're wondering about stones and trees, uh, were pretty common metaphors, actually, for the children of Israel. Uh, In Isaiah uh, chapter 51, verse 1, it says, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn, referencing the children of Israel. So for him to say, you were already cut out of rocks, I'll cut some more people out of rocks if you're not going to live it out. And then it was a common metaphor for the children of Israel to be referenced as trees or vines or something like that. So for him to be saying, the axe is already at the root of the tree, essentially is saying, baptism, repentance, without action, fruit coming with that, doesn't matter, you're, it's, it's going to, it's, it's, it, it's, that's not what, where all the life is. That, that will, you're gonna, it's going to get cut off. You just having the title of Jew, you just having the title of sons of Abraham, seed of Abraham, is not all that it's cut out to be. And he says, well, in verse 10, what should we do then, the crowd asked. And John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Okay, so we have crowds, which included some religious folks, maybe some some Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law. And then there were some other groups there that were getting baptized. Verse 11, or excuse me, verse 12. 
tax collectors. Tax collectors actually would not, most oftentimes tax collectors would have been Romans, but uh, Jews would oftentimes be what they would call toll collectors, and so he was talking to Jews that were kind of working for the enemy to some degree. Even tax collectors or toll collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? And he says, don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him. Now again, not Roman soldiers, but Jewish uh, soldiers. They were actually kind of hired, hired for by the Romans. So, so again, kind of working for the enemy. And he said, then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly. I think I would be too if I had heard some word about a Messiah coming 30 years prior, been waiting for thousands of years prior to that through, through our families and through oral tradition and story. They're waiting expectantly, expectantly, and all were wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. So, so there's not just a, oh, there's a word of the Lord coming. They actually think that John might be the Messiah. So they're flocking out for a couple of reasons. One, to hear something from God, and two, because they think John might actually be the one. And so I, want, I think it's important for us to recognize a couple of things here. That when John, when, when John is talking about us producing fruit and keeping with repentance— that repentance is necessary for us to turn our whole hearts and our souls towards God, away from the things that are not giving life to the one that is life. But that repentance in and of itself doesn't guarantee fruit. He seems to be indicating, okay, you can turn your life towards God, but now I want you to demonstrate that your life is turned towards God. A humbling of heart is to lead to a transformation of actions. I, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, right after Christmas, I did a wedding, and uh, my wife Jossie and I were driving up to the wedding, and uh, I was officiating, and so I had my suit on, all that. We were driving up. We lived downtown, and the wedding was at the Air Force Academy, and we were driving up the freeway, and right about to get off at the Northgate exit, when I gasped, literally, <gasps> And I looked at my wife, I said, I don't have my notes. I forgot my notes. They were in my car, the other car, we took a different car. And, and, I'm, and now I look at the time and the t- amount of time to get all the way back down to downtown and back up to the Air Force Academy. I knew I wasn't going to be there on time. So we called some friends, see if they're down, at, down there at, by, by our house. They could come up and meet us or whatever. Couldn't get hold of anybody or they were not there. Said, well, we got to turn around. We ended up turning around, going all the way back home, got, got up to the uh, Air Force Academy, got to the chapel late, and the wedding started late and, because of me. And so, um, which really was not as nerve-wracking for me as the time that I forgot my pants when I did a wedding one time, but that's a totally different story. But, but if I hadn't gone back for my notes, and I had all the vows, they had four or five different sets of vows, the ring vows, um, congregational vows, all these different vows, things that I did not have anywhere else. They were printed out, the whole thing. But if I would have said, no, you know what, I'm not going to turn around. I'm going to just go. I mean, I'm a pastor. got my suit on. I've been ordained. We're, we're good, you know. I'll just, we'll be fine. Go up there, you know, and then we walk, they walk up to the aisle, beautiful processional, you know, flowers everywhere, music, 
they're standing up at the front of the altar, and I have no book, and I stand there, and I think, all right, well, do you, um, what do you think? There's, there's this disconnect, you know, if I, um, do you, uh, do you take her to be your lawfully wedded wife, to having to hold, you know, I could probably fake part of it, but there was this, and this particular wedding had four or five different vows. They had vows to one another. They had vows to God. They had vows to Christian home. They had, a, they had vows from the congregation, which I've only done a couple of times. So I would have been like, so congregation, do you um, vow to help them and love them and support them and pray for them? And, and I would have, it would have been a disaster, honestly, is what I'm trying to say. But if I'd have got up there and said, well, don't, don't worry about it. I mean, I'm a pastor. I've got the suit on. I, I've done this before. I'm going to do it again. There's, there's this incongruence between what I have as paperwork and me actually doing it. The fruit of that licensure or ordination paper, I don't know that that would have cut it for them that day. And in some ways, Jesus is saying, you might have the paper, you, you might have the paperwork that you're a son of Adam, or excuse me, a son of Abraham. But I'm not sure that that's going to cut it. We, I wanna, there's something that's going to come out of this repentance. And he starts to then talk about some of the ways for these different people that this is supposed to look. And so I want to just talk about, in, in a couple of big ways, what, are some, what, is the, what does fruitful repentance look like? For one, I believe that fruitful repentance impacts others. Traditional repentance, if you think about it up to this point, had been expressed by putting on sackcloth and ashes and offering sacrifices. So for John to be saying repentance and the fruit of repentance is to look like you impacting the people around you might have actually been pretty profound for them. Maybe he's actually starting to, to bring to life again the covenant of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, which says, I'm going to bless you so that you can bless other people. So that your repentance isn't just about you. Your repentance becomes about the people around you. And it's clear, and it's direct. And if you think about especially the first group of people that he's addressing, the Pharisees, they spent a lot of their time hair-splitting. They accused the, the disciples, why are you... Your disciples are plucking wheat on the Sabbath. I think that's work, so they're obviously a mess. You can't obviously be the Messiah. This is, and they're splitting a lot of hairs. And they, I wonder if maybe John is addressing their hair splitting and the time that they're taking to discuss what they're supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do, and that actually taking energy away from doing something about the world in which they live. I have four boys. Some of you know this. Um, Parker, Cohen, Brooks, and Smith. Say it nicely together. It's a wonderful law firm. And so Parker, Cohen, Brooks, and Smith um, have a good amount of toys and books and stuffed animals and all that kind of stuff. And it seems like Jossie and I, you know, we, we try to have somewhat of a home in order. And so every now and then we take the task one night, maybe we put them all to bed, and we put all the toys away and books in the shelves and and you, you think, wow, wow, this is, this is what our house is like. This is wonderful. And, but then it seems like the next day or within two days tops, 
they somehow have decided not only are we going to play with one thing or two things, we're going to play with everything that we have and everything, especially that mom and dad took at, put away and more. And so next thing you know, the, the house is covered with toys on the floor, on the tables, on the, in their beds, uh, I mean, everywhere there's something. And so I might go to my boys and say, okay, uh, Parker and Cohen, they live in the same room. They, they have the same room. They share, share a room. They have bunk beds. And, and I say to them, Parker and Cohen, your room is a mess. Please go clean up your room. Now, if they walk away and, uh, and then they come back and they say, Dad, we memorized what you said. You said, Parker and Cohen, your room is a mess. Now, please go clean up your room. And they, memorize, they quote it back to me. And, they, and I say, okay, that's really nice. But then I go look at the room, and it's not cleaned up. And then they invite some friends over. And, and the, the, they bring their friends into their messy room. And in their messy room, they study their messy room, and they start talking about what their room would look like if it were actually clean. And they spend time studying, maybe drawing pictures of what it would look like if it were clean, and and what it would look like if the books were on the shelves and the toys were off the floor and things were where they belonged. And then they come to me and they say, Dad, we've memorized it. We've, what you said. We, uh, we've studied what it's supposed to and going to look like if we were to actually clean it. We actually can say back to you what it is that you said in Greek. <laughs> but there's no clean room. See, I wonder if that's maybe a little bit, of course I'm exaggerating a little bit, what, what, if, what if maybe that's a little bit of what the Pharisees were doing? They had taken the word of God, the, the, the message, the Torah, and instead of somehow living it out, they had started hair splitting, having these, having these massive discussions about what it is that this was supposed to look like, and instead of actually doing it while they're trying to discuss and work those things out, they stopped doing it and all they did was discuss. And so, fruitful repentance, one, impacts others. Two, fruitful repentance is individual and personal. One of the things I notice here in this passage is that he addresses very individual things. He says, if you have two coats, give one away. If you have some extra food, give it to somebody who needs some. If you're working in this particular job change this. Sometimes, I'm not as much like this, but maybe some of you are, and I know my wife is, for sure. When she watches the news, or hears something on the radio, um, or knows about something going on around the world, like this justice conference, it's a wonderful awareness thing, and I, I don't know all the details about it, but there's a part of me that makes me think, I'm not sure if I want to bring my wife to that. Not because, I don't want, uh, because we don't want to be aware of what's going on, but because it would be very overwhelming for my wife. <laughs> she might walk away thinking, I don't know what I can do. I mean, there's sex trafficking going on in Thailand, and there's stuff going on in Bangladesh, and I, what's happening in South America, and, and we need to adopt. We have, there's foster kids, and there's, there's uh, a genocide happening, and this, and all of a sudden, all you see is these massive societal global problems. But what John is saying is that repentance might actually just look like you being a blessing and correcting an injustice on a very personal 
level. Maybe there isn't a whole lot we can do individually to change the sex trade in Thailand, but do you have an extra coat? Do you have some extra food? Do you have some extra money? Do you know of somebody, maybe your actual neighbor or maybe somebody that you work with that's in need in some way? Do something there. We might say, well, I don't know what to do with the people in Haiti. I don't know how to fix that problem either, but I do know how to help one person. Maybe I wonder, you know, Compassion International is just down the road. I think the, the way in which they've, they're trying to address poverty, especially, specifically amongst kids, is really profound because they're not pushing for you to adopt a village. They're not pushing for you to adopt a country, a city, one kid, one child. And so, as we see these massive global problems, and they are huge problems, and collectively, I believe that we can actually make a dent in some places if we can be focused and have some good strategy, but overall, I think what, what, what we're being called to is to address injustice on an individual and a personal level. The answer begins with the individual. Fruitful repentance impacts others, is individual and personal. And the other thing that I see here is that now there's these two jobs that he addresses. The tax collector and the soldier hated professions. The people didn't like the tax collectors and the military soldiers because they worked for the enemy. Now, notice what John doesn't say. He doesn't say, quit your job and stop working for the enemy. Instead, what he said, some of you might feel like you work for the devil. <laughs> I wonder if John the Baptist and Jesus wouldn't say to you, don't stop working, just do it well and do it honorably. Don't use the power that you have to abuse other people. I was reminded of the story of Zacchaeus. Jesus comes to his house and he never tells Zacchaeus to stop being a tax collector. But what happens to Zacchaeus? He just pays back all the people that he stole from. What if one of the ways in which we can address injustice is on a very small, everyday scale? Is that in our jobs, we can communicate the love and the life of God by not being greedy, by not using power that we have for ourselves, but instead we use the power and the authority that we have to serve other people, to humble ourselves and to give of ourselves and bless others with the influence that we've been given rather than using it for our own gain. All three of these responses to the what should we do question all three call for an end to a lifestyle based on greed and the accumulation of material possessions. He's calling them to turn, repent, and to have actions that live out the fact that you are living not for the kingdom of self, but for another kingdom. Notice how he didn't say the fruit of repentance. What should we do? Go preach the gospel. Go work for a missions organization. He instead is saying, do those things, preach the gospel, and have a missional focus from within. 
the kingdom of God, fruitful repentance, works from within our world. From within where we are. I loved what Glenn said a little bit earlier when he was talking about the Nicene Creed. And he talked about the militant church and the triumphant church. Because these couple of different uh, descriptions of what should be done, of giving away a coat and help feeding the hungry, when we clothe the naked, when we feed the hungry, we actually enjoy the world to come, the church triumphant. And when we choose mercy over indifference, generosity over greed, action over apathy, self-restraint over succumbing to our selfish desires, we choose now to live in the kingdom of God, the church militant. It's the, I'm going to live and long for the kingdom to come, the fullness of the kingdom, but I'm also going to live it out now. And so when he's talking about repentance, he's not talking about just, okay, repent so that you have your eternal salvation taken care of, and then let's just hang on because this world's going to burn. If you've been here for any length of time, you know about new heaven and new earth because of Glenn Packiam. Holly Packiam said to Glenn just the other day, is there ever a sermon that you're going to preach that doesn't include new heaven and new earth? (laughs) Who knows? Probably not. And so... So I don't have to go into that. I'm really grateful. So if you haven't been here, just come next week. You'll learn. And so, but it is because now matters for the future. It's not that now doesn't matter because this world is going to burn and we're going to sit up on some clouds and play harps together. It's about us acting out, living out the kingdom of heaven, experiencing it now and longing for it then. And then finally, fruitful repentance announces the kingdom. Glenn and I both went to school and sit to the same school, and I remember some statements like this that said, live wealthy, have lots of money, drive really nice cars, have a lot of stuff to communicate the favor of God on your life. I, I don't see that in here. Instead, he says almost the opposite. Let go of as much as you can. Give stuff away. If you have more than one, give it away. Because in your generosity and in your executing justice, helping those who are in need, bringing and, and taking care of the injustices within your own, maybe, maybe for the tax collectors and the military people, my guess is that that was pretty normal for them to be extorting others and to be taking advantage of others with the power that they had been given from Rome. And so what if we, on a very personal, very individual level, address injustice in those ways? And it's maybe not in the accumulation of things, but in the giving away of things and in doing things differently than the world on a very small, daily, at-work scale that the kingdom of God is announced. See, because John is not just a moral reformer. He's trying to make all these people do some nice things. John is announcing the arrival of the Messiah and the announcing of the breaking in of the kingdom. And so, in the same way, by us repenting, turning from the kingdom of self, the things that are all about us, and turning our hearts, heart and soul to God, and acting that out, having fruitful repentance, what do we do? We announce the kingdom. 
we prepare the way for the Messiah in our world. And so the question I would ask for all of us as we close here is, have I repented? Have I turned my heart towards God? And if so, or if not, is my repentance fruitful? Fruitful in a way that it impacts the people around me, that it's direct, it's, it's, it's specific, it's individual, it's personal. It's in a way that I'm not trying to escape, but instead I'm allowing and wanting the kingdom to work from within. Is my repentance, is my life, is my heart turning towards God? Is it announcing the kingdom? Lord Jesus, we are so grateful. Grateful for your word, grateful for your truth. Thank you for sending your Messiah, sending your son Jesus. Coming to the world, breaking in, doing something about the brokenness of our world and calling us to the same calling us to a fruitful repentance and just as John the Baptist prepared the way repentance prepares the way for Jesus pray that the repentance the humbling of our own hearts would prepare the way for Jesus to address things in our own lives and that the addressing of things in our own lives would take on an outward fruitfulness. That the blessings that we receive in repentance, the blessings we receive in Jesus, the blessings and the, the things that we experience in the kingdom of God, we would turn around and bless the world around us. This we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.